Hey team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera. This is the spot where we provide raw, unfiltered insights from some amazing guests. Stand by, you're about to be offended in all the right ways. All right, team, welcome back to the podcast. I have repeat guest Pascal Finette on our show today. He actually was back on an episode 33 on an ep- on a show we called Jester Always Tells the Truth. We talked entrepreneurship, uh, who makes a you know great entrepreneur, whether you should consider that journey or not, or if there's another place for you. Tune into that one if you haven't got a chance, but just epic words of wisdom and just insights. So Pascal, my friend, welcome back. Joseph, thank you so much for having me back. I'm honored. I'm uh really excited for our conversation now yeah brother i'm so stoked man because i i got so many things first of all i'll i'll let the cat out of the bag that with your new book coming out disrupt disruption just a lot of great nuggets in that thing and just uh, the process i can only imagine of how you put all that information to distill it together so looking forward to talking about that but before we do just for those of you who may not know pascal and didn't do the quick let me go back to episode 33 real quick and figure out who the heck this guy is easily findable and somebody who's had leadership positions at places like Mozilla, Google, eBay, and so has done the big tech thing, but now is, which I love this title, man, Chief Heretic and co-founder of this of this great team called Be Radical. And they are really serving as strategic advisors to some of the most epic and leading companies out there about how they think about their future, how they think about solving problems, and probably most importantly, like how are they leaving a lasting impact in the things that they do. So. Again, man, really stoked to have you on and stoked to talk about this new book that you have. So, by the way, how's that going? I mean, how that's probably what I want to kick off with because that whole book journey has got to be, it's a beast of its own. It is definitely a beast of its own. Um, we're very blessed and lucky that uh, apparently we have an, a captive audience and an audience which likes to read this book. So, uh, what happened to the book is we launched a week ago um, on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and a bunch of other uh, places, and you can buy it in any bookstore. Uh, within 24 hours, we became f- um, uh, best new launch, uh, number one category launch, um, and within t- uh, another 12 hours later, uh, we were best selling book, and we continue to be best selling book in our in our category, which is Unreal. super super nice. It strokes the ego, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you feel good to build it. It makes you feel like really it. good. Yeah. But honestly, like the thing which like really warms my heart is because here's the thing, right? It's like you you write this book, and as every person, I'm pretty much sure as every person, I'm uh, riddled with self doubt. So you write the book, you put it out there, you can't take it back, <laughs> and then. You're just so like, you know, for me, it's like, what will people make out of this thing? And it's really nice to see that people who are not my friends, you know, clearly my friends are like, oh, it's a great book. You know, of course, they're my friends, right? Um, But people who are not my friends, people who, you know, I barely know or I don't know at all, um, start writing me emails saying like, hey, listen, like I got this thing out of the book or like really like the way you describe this. So that's really, really nice to see. Yeah, I mean, it. are there moments in that journey, even right before you're about to go live, where there's a part of you that goes, maybe I need to rewrite that chapter? Oh, 100%. There- <laughs> all the time. I mean, seriously, I mean, the, the um, for me, it's less about necessarily rewriting this, as in like, you know, oh, this doesn't, this is not right or something, right? It's, right. For me, it's much more about, I, re- I write it, I read it, and then I'm, I start doubting myself, like, is this even insightful? Does this even matter? Does any, like, is there any, like, new information here? Um, so for sure, I went through uh, <laughs> quite a few uh, rounds of hell on this one. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, it, it, but at some point, I imagine you just got it, and I'm sure you probably have your personal board of advisors and friends that are just like, you got to let it go. It's got to go live. We got to get this thing done. Yes, yes, indeed. It also helps that my wife uh, wrote a best-selling book, and um, about two years before I did, yeah. and you know, she kept telling me, "It's just like, forget it, just push it out there. It's fine. It's fine. Don't you know? Like, don't worry. It's fine." And um, you know, clearly, like, I think with every piece of work, um, it's always this thing: is like you got it out there, and you're like, "Ah, I could have done this better, or could have like whatever." You know, you can always polish it, but. You know, we talked about this in our first conversation. It's really on the entrepreneurial path. There's a moment where you just need to commit and you're like, it's good enough. It needs yeah. to be out there. 
That's right. You commit and then you figure it out, right? That's the whole art of this whole thing. So talk to me about how this came to be, because mm -hmm. I know you went through talking through some incredible folks to distill a lot of the ideas that came in there and then how it made sense. Just can you talk to me about one, why this even came to life? Why did you decide to write it? And then two, how did you end up writing it? Yeah, absolutely. So the short story of how it started is essentially a culmination of maybe three things. One was uh, at the time I was uh, working at Singularity University, which is this really interesting think tank um, and an educational organization out of Silicon Valley. And I heard in this ether around Singularity, uh, the words disruption being tossed around a lot. Um, yeah. And you you know, today you can't open a business magazine, which doesn't have like headlines, which say disrupt this or disrupt that. And I got pretty annoyed by that because we're using this so lavishly and so um, without distinction anymore uh, that I got fairly curious about it to say what actually happens here? What is disruption actually look like and how do we react to it? That was number one. Number two was um, very similar to you, I just started talking to people and, you know, like we started podcasting and um, talking to people is like, how does your, like, how do you think about innovation? How do you think about disruption? Because I was just very curious to hear from people who are smarter than I am, who've done more work in this space, have done different work, what their perspective is. And then the third one, and this really got me to write the book ultimately was I had on my, uh, on my quest to talk to people, I spoken to a gentleman called Andy Billings, who's at Electronic Arts, the game making company. Mm -hmm. um, he's been with the company for 25 years and has this like interesting leadership positions there. And we talked about how does a company like Electronic Arts stay relevant for now 40 years in a market which is incredibly fast moving? You know, like there's very few markets which are moving as fast as like PC and computer and console gaming. And um, he said, he gave me a bunch of pointers, but then ended our conversation with this quote and, and comment. He said, you know, when you talk to the people on the front lines, they tell you that this whole innovation disruption thing does not look like anything they write about in the books. And it kind of triggered me. And I was like, really interesting because I was like, wait, like I read all the books or not all of them, but I read a good chunk of them. And I think you're right. They're, they're great, you know, without a doubt, great books, but they don't feel like they're often like really practical as to what happens in the trenches when you're like in the weeds of doing stuff. And so it triggered me and I was like, you know what, let me try to write the book about this because I've by then had already spoken to like 40, 50 people who were doing the work and saw what they were doing. So long story short, we ended up for the book, we ended up interviewing about 250 people and we asked them one simple question. We said, don't tell me this, the history, don't tell me the strategy, don't give me the PowerPoint deck. Just tell me what you did, because remember, it's like different in the trenches. And um, as often in life, you know, when you've got enough people telling you stuff, you see patterns emerge. And those patterns we basically distilled, combined them with insights we had from the work we're doing with our clients, and that became the book. Uh, I mean, incredible. I mean, what's the, as you were going through the process of folks just telling you what happened, without mm -hmm. spoiling the the essence that is reading a great book. What is the thing that hit you in the face again, Pascal, that you were like, really? Like this almost happened every single conversation. You know, it's interesting. So, I mean, we clearly can talk about like the, the insights we gained, um, but probably a little bit more on the meta level is what struck me was that everything we heard if you think about it long enough, you realize it's all common sense. <laughs> and there's a really fascinating thing. We see, you know, I was always scratching my head, like, where's the big insight? You know, where's this like Einstein moment? You know, when people told me the things they did really come, come down to like, yes, of course we should do it that way. You know, it just makes perfect sense. But it came down to, as part of this, process we talked and i had this great privilege to talk to one of the leaders of the uh, british sas the special air services which is their you know elite unit elite, and yeah. we talked about like how do you make decisions in extreme stressful situations where it's truly life or death how do you conceptually think about this and that leader said to me pascal it has to be common sense because if it's not common sense none of my soldiers will ever do it the challenge with that is 
that common sense tends not to be common practice. So we need to teach people to just do common sense and turn it into common practice. So that was kind of a guiding principle which emerged for us as we were writing, as we were researching and writing the book, um, ultimately. So really common sense. Common sense. So that's probably the disparity one gets when we read these really fascinating articles about the strategy and the big takeaways and how CEO X or founder Y figured out a way to get their business to continue to disrupt this industry. It sounds like the frontline folks are saying, yeah, but in practice, mm -hmm. that we, we, that took us iteration after iteration, messing things up, throwing the things away, right? It's a bunch of stuff that's not fancy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also not necessarily complicated. So make no mistake, we're operating in really complex environments. Um, but I do think that there is, and you see this when you, know, like you read through the book um, and you look at the, these principles we've, um, we distilled ultimately. Um, what you realize is that if the tool you're applying isn't robust enough, meaning it is not very like commonsensical, like it's, you can use it, you can't just actually do anything with it. So it's a bit like you want to have a toolbox with like a pliers and hammers and a saw in it instead of highly specialized tools because the challenge is that the environment we're in, because it is so complex, so fast moving, so radically changing, you need generalist tools and you need to know how to use them um, instead of very specific, you know, like here's this strategy and you know, like you need to fill out the following 14 pages of this Excel spreadsheet and then it spits out the one number, which always is 42, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that kind of thing. Um, again, like I found this fascinating to see that the people who are actually successful at this stuff, they're running around with hammers and saws and pliers and make them work. Is it more of a widespread knowledge? To, like once it seems to me that the common sense part, getting it into common practice, is it is the people who win are the folks that are able to scale that practice throughout their organization, or is it something else? I think it's that, but I also think it's the willingness of someone to actually do that kind of thing. And also quite frankly, and you know, just speaking also of my own, um, my own life, my own pr practice, if you are a highly paid executive, I think there's a tendency to think that you have to do things really complicated because that's what they pay you money for, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's not like, hey, Pascal, just like, you know, go to your people and tell them like, fill out this thing and we're good, you know? <laughs> so I think there's a, there's a little bit of like an interesting dichotomy, which is this like, you know, like we feel like we, we should and we have to, when we might even know deep down in our hearts that no, actually, you know, like that common path is actually the right, um, the right approach. And then, you know, committing to it. Sounds like, I mean, the, that what you just kind of, what went straight through my brain was, oh, maintaining humility, right? Because like, that's mm -hmm. one of those things where we often will find a problem. And to your point, let's create a system, a process, let's get a committee together, let's do these things. When instead, it's probably as easy as walking over to the marketing department and being like, can you show me how you do this? You know, yeah. and it sounds so like, yeah. well, I mean, but I got to go seven levels below myself to make that happen. Yeah, but that's the fastest way to do it. And also understanding that you very often don't have the answers, which is kind of interesting, right? Because it's, it's antithetical to what we grew up with. You got your grades A in school for having the right answer. You got, typically you get promoted for having the right answer. But then this world we're living in, high uncertainty, high complexity, you know, like the military term VUCA, right? Volatility, uncertainty, and uh, complexity, ambiguity really applies to the world we're living in. Meaning in this world, you actually don't have the answers anymore. You cannot have the answer. So you need to rely on asking better questions. And yeah, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's like iterating our way forward. But that requires a leader who goes out to their people and says, I don't know. <laughs> what do I know? Like, let's figure it out. I'm here to help you, to guide you, to coach you. But I don't know. And I think that's an interesting leadership skill, which requires humility, but also courage. Where did that fall apart, you think? Where did that, as I'm talking to you, feel so clear, common sense, right? Where mm -hmm. did that 
Where do you think that went off the rails? Where did it become not okay to be good with saying, I didn't know, I don't know? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know, it's like corporate America or something. I have no idea, literally. I mean, there's a really funny story um, and you will relate to this. Uh, so we heard that story from a friend of mine, Maurice Conti, um, and Maurice used to run um, the Moonshot factory at Telefonica Alpha. So they were really, uh, Telefonica Alpha, like a very large telco out of Europe. Um, and they were, similar to Google X, they were literally building like crazy stuff for the future. And um, so he told me the story is like the challenge we often have is that people, leaders, they commit to the process, but they don't commit to the outcome because the outcome can be nasty and can be messy, right? So, and this, the story he likes to tell you is, um, you have a bunch of executives and they go into the movies, they go to the cinema and they watch a really good Western, you know, like John Wayne, see them like see John Wayne, like at the end, they see John Wayne, like riding off into the, into the distance. And they say, man, we need cowboys in our company because cowboys, they're amazing. So they go and hire cowboys, right? They hire people like you and I, they give us a whole floor in the building, right? There's the cowboy floor in the building. A week into the Cowboys doing that Cowboy thing, the executives come down to the Cowboys and say, man, Cowboys, we love you. You're amazing. Like we can already see the culture in the companies changing, you know, people running around saying yeehaw and stuff. But there's a little problem. You ride horses and the Cowboys are like, of course, that's what we do, right? That's you Cowboys. And like, well, you know, like the horses, they poop everywhere and they smell. And well. also, I mean, you know, 21st century, like, would you be okay driving cars? And the Cowboys look at each other and they're like, Ah, you know, like we really cowboys, horses are a thing, but whatever, it's fine. Give us cars. It's all right. But at least give us, you know, nice F-150s. So they get their F-150s. They drive around now. A week later, HR comes down to the cowboys and says, guys, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Like totally can see the shift in the company. Also, thank you so much for being so accommodating. We have just one question. And cowboys look at each other and like, what, you know, what do you, what do you want? And Ed Ross says like, well, you're running around with guns, right? And the cowboys are like, of course we're cowboys. That's what we do. And they, HR looks at them and is like, well, it's an HR violation. We're sorry. You can't run around with like loaded guns here. It's like, you can't. Would you be okay running around with plastic toy guns? And the cowboys look at each other and like, oh, really? How do I have to do that? Anyway, they agree because they want to be good, you know, stewards of the company. And by the end of that process, of course, this repeats itself week over week over week. You have a whole bunch of old white dudes running around in cowboy boots pretending they're cowboys. And that's, you know, I find that story so interesting because that's exactly the problem we have, which is we love the idea. But then when it gets into the going and you realize it's messy, it's smelly, it's stinky, you know, like you need to bend the rules, right? We don't want to do it. And then we end up with like this weird cliche version of innovation and disruption and what have you, instead of actually committing to it. And what we found is that the companies which do this really, really well, they've got leadership, which just doesn't give a damn. They're just like, nope, it's fine. We need cowboys. I want cowboys. They need to look like cowboys. It's fine. I give them the, the space, the air cover. So for me, it really comes down to how do you actually show up as a leader? And I think that has a lot to do with just your personal ability to stand up for things and be willing. I mean, honestly, be willing to ultimately, you know, like if things go sideways, you might be out of a job and you need to be willing to do that. You need to have so much conviction that you say, this is important. I'm standing up for it. I think it's the right thing. And even if we fail, I'm okay with that. And that's rare. And you know, I get it because people have to pay mortgages. No, you're, and I think this is where it's, this is where it frays. And this is where, mm -hmm. and I think timing and that gap that you have between, this is where I think like a founder's soul, for example, is so important to figure out how to continue to permeate through time with an organization, assuming that that, is, that soul is, is worth permeating. Mm -hmm. But it reminds me, what you just demonstrated there, Pascal, reminds me of a time where, when I was in the service years and years ago, one of the things we'd always do with our new crop of troopers is we'd take them through the first week or two. And what we would do is just talk to them about our history. We'd mm -hmm. talk to them about the heroes that we had, how this thing even came to be, the things mm -hmm. that happened on from D-Day all the way to, you know, things in the Korngal Valley, whatever those things are. And it helps kind of set the tone for, it took really hard people doing hard things to get us to where we're at now. And it's going to continue taking that moving forward. 
where I think it's sometimes when you enter into a organization and you've 40 years removed from when the thing started, it's really easy to say, well, I learned this in my MBA and what you guys mm-hmm. seem like you're doing here is not polished. And so I need to go figure out how to just, you know, all this weird scrappy stuff that you're doing and kind of the not give a hoot ain't going to work moving forward. And then the soul begins to leave the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Agree. Yeah. Absolutely it's fascinating. Agree. Talk to me about where, just one more thing on this subject, because I do mm-hmm. want to talk about some of the things um, that we picked up here in your book. But talk to me about just, have you found, as you were interviewing and talking to folks, and as you're even helping companies in with Be Radical, what is, is there something basic folks can do to hold on to that soul a little longer, especially when they found themselves already finding, you know, it's or they see that it's leaving or has left the company, is what can they do? Or is that just a dead cause? No, I don't think so. Um, I think... It comes down to exactly what you just described, which is really um, storytelling combined with a, what is it we're fighting for? Uh, you know, at one point, uh, Andy Billings and I talked about the gentleman we talked about earlier from Electronic Arts. We talked about motivation and like, why do you actually stick stuff out even in sticky situations in a company, etc. And he had this interesting framing is like, you know, like when I see teams inside of EA struggle, I always ask them, like, connect with something worth fighting for. As long as you have that, you can, you can struggle through it. If that has left you, you should probably leave the company. Um, but this question is actually really interesting. So like, what's something worth fighting for? And I think there's a, there's a, if you level that up, there's a meta point about what is the company, the organization actually fighting for? Um, and if that isn't, I believe, a higher cause than making the quarterly numbers, because that clearly is not interesting, um, then it's a lost cause. Then you have to really reassess like, you know, what are we actually doing here? Now, if you have something which is like, that's I think as, a, as the, at the essence, like why do you even exist? And, you know, in the book, uh, we uh, retell a story uh, we heard from one of the people we interviewed where he likens companies sometimes to, like he said, like there's paperclip companies. These are companies which make paperclips and they might be the best paperclip company on the planet. But if they don't know why they're making paperclips and what problem they're solving for the customer, which is really the why, they're just paperclip companies. It doesn't matter. And the moment something shifts in the market, they're gone. Uh, so I think that's really important. And the second part is exactly what you described, which is once you found something worth fighting for, then you can reignite the um the passion for the company and the direction for the company by telling stories because every company, every company went through a lot of struggle to get to where they are today. There's absolutely no question. And like reconnecting with those, like our ancestral roots, you know, company ancestral roots is incredibly important. Um, And I, I do believe you can, you can create, I've seen it. Like you can create really proud company, company, cultures, even to the point where a company says, you know, we made whatever, we made pencils, but there was a reason for us to make these pencils. There was a reason why we made the pencils the way we made them. There's stories about how we made those pencils, you know, our founders originally, et cetera. And today we're not making pencils anymore because nobody's buying pencils anymore, but we're writing software, whatever. But it connects to the same origin, to the same root. And that is incredibly powerful you find yourself in a situation where finding that route is difficult do you find that i've seen companies what they've Mm -hmm. done is say okay we make paper clips and it is really difficult for us to find the fighting point but what you know what we're doing though our profits though are going to support this thing that's completely maybe unrelated to the company at all we are helping bring fresh water to folks uh you know down in this valley Mm-hmm. Do you think, is that enough? Or do you think it's too many degrees removed to be able to create that fighting will? It's a good question. I think personally, I mean, I applaud them for like connecting these things in the first place, because there's a decent amount of companies which say, no, our sole purpose is shareholder value, right? And I think that's pretty soulless and clearly with younger generations doesn't fly anymore. We know that. But I believe that if your purpose and your vehicle, how you get there, are very disconnected. It's hard for most people to actually get get 
the connection, right? Because it's really hard to, for me to see, well, if I make paper clips and I make like, you know, 50 million more paper clips this year, then we can build a few more welds. It, it, it's weird to connect. On the flip side of that, you look at, you know, granted, this is a massively overused example, but you look at something like Patagonia, where their purpose really is to protect our natural habitat, um, the, the great outdoors. Yeah, that's all they care about. They just happen to make also really good outdoor clothing. But the connection between the two is, is at least it's there, right? They make something which and allows me to enjoy the outdoors, which I, by the way, also have protected or support protect the protection of by purchasing these items from Patagonia. Yeah. And I think the companies which like figure that stuff out, they're really onto something. No, they are. It's uh, almost an unstoppable force. And you're right. They are, they are not just doing something that just ha you have to seek too hard. Literally, the product Patagonia that they are selling puts me in the environment that we are helping, right? That's and good. so the, the connection is immediate, right? Even though that seems maybe half a degree removed or whatever the case might be. Now it's incredible, Pascal. It makes me wonder about how many folks who are even going to listen into this go. Let me look at the architecture of my company, right? Like what. Mm -hmm. Does this matter or not? Or how do we get there? Right? I uh, know it's incredible. Um, yeah, and quite frankly, ahead. just talking about very briefly about this, because there's a really powerful question, which I think companies, my feeling is don't ask themselves often enough, which is, you know, one is clearly is like, what's my purpose? What am I connected with? The other one is, what's the problem I'm actually solving for my client, for my customer? You know, Clayton Christian and the, the godfather of uh, disruptive innovation, he once called this the, the job to be done. What is the job I'm actually solving for my customer to be done? You know, like the classic example is people don't tend to not buy power drills because they want to own a power drill. You buy a power drill because you've got a project to do, right? You want to hang a picture or whatever it is. You don't really care about the power drill per se. And I find observationally just too many companies are stuck in the yeah, but we make power drills and we make the best power drills on the planet, you know, the cheapest or the most colorful or whatever. I'm like, that's great. But really, that's not what the customer typically cares about. Right? So really asking, so connecting with why do you exist? Like, what is the problem you're solving for your customer that then allows you also, and this gets to this whole thing around disrupting disruption. This allows you to then also much better move from one way to solve your customer problem to a new way a better way to solving a customer problem, right? When that comes along, where you say, well, you know, I don't know, like instead of drilling holes with like a like a metal drill, we now use a laser, you know, space laser. Yeah. Um, by all means, right? Then you become a laser company. You suddenly are not making like metal tools anymore, right? But you're still solving that customer need. And that's, I think is really important to understand. Yeah, so you can like going back to the paper. I think the paper, by the way, the paper cave is a, such a great example of something that from a utility perspective, we all use, but at the end of the day, none of us really are emotionally connected to the paperclip. But I'm sure years ago, whenever it's this idea of it started, was to help organize probably throughput of how people can be productive in their organization. I'm sure someone who could dig far enough could find that. <laughs> so what I hear you saying is, hey, look, maybe now reconsider how else do you do that? How else right. are you connecting organizations and making them efficient and making them the best versions of themselves? Mm -hmm. Make that your story, not, we sell really great cheap paper clips. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. Unreal, man. I think it's, it is something that, especially as you get further and further away, I think it is going back to the Patagonia example. You know, I, I'm a personal fan of Yvonne Chouinard and I think what he's done really great, which will end at some point, but it sounds like he's done enough groundwork. Well, the legacy and the essence of it will live on, but that guy stayed heavily involved in the soul of the company. I mean, yeah. he just is, you never left, even though he's not running the day to day of it. We, you, you can, everybody there, I'm sure just understands that his soul beats very, diff, you know, very hard in what they do. And I give you an example. So I'm a climber, right? So, uh, yeah. Yvonne is clearly a hero of like everybody in the climbing community is a really good climber in his years was a really good climber. Yeah. I recently saw a, uh, a bunch of pictures being taken from, um, he revisited the climb with a bunch of his old friends and Yvonne is in his like what seventies or something, eighties. I have no yeah. idea. It's like I think old. 80s. Yeah, he's old. So he's like basically climbs this 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 climb he did as a young person with like a bunch of his buddies. They're also like in their 60s and 70s. And on the photo, you see him like climbing in Patagonia gear, clearly. And the Patagonia gear is patched with uh, duct tape. And 
that tells you anything and everything you need to understand. Like that's the spirit of the company, right? It's this notion that no, he's not just like throwing it away just because there's a little hole in it, right? He's like, that's environmentally the wrong thing to do. I just put a patch on it. It's fine. And to your point about storytelling, I guarantee you anybody and everybody who works at Patagonia has seen those pictures. Yeah. And you don't need a tagline underneath it, right? Look at our founder. He's using patchwork like to like not throw away his jacket, right? You don't need to tell anyone. You yep. see it and you're like, huh, all right, that's us. That's our spirit. You know, that's our history. That's our legacy. That's what we stand for. And that's how we want to run the company. And I think then you are off to the races in a really good way. Yeah. I mean, it. that example of the patchwork and stuff is such a, that's the way in which I think leaders can think about how they break their mind around, well, you know, we're, we're just a big company now, so we can't mm -hmm. do this stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. That's clearly not the case, you know, and you have folks that are not only showing it, but living through that example. I mean, and I think going back to your, Going back to your point about folks talking about disruption, how that's kind of getting watered down. I think it gets watered down because it's lost any of the rigor mm -hmm. and umph that it had in the early days of where it probably was disruptive or could have been, you know, and now it just feels yeah. very much like corporate rhetoric about how, you know, they try to get people to believe that they're doing something innovative instead of just being innovative. Yeah, and I, I think there's a really interesting thing is I, I spoke to um, a friend of mine, Josep Castellet, who works at a company called Oberalp. Um, they're a conglomerate of uh, outdoor brands. So they own a bunch of like ski brands and climbing and uh, mountain running and so on. And um, he pointed out to me the Swiss army knife, the famous Swiss army knife, right? And the fact that the Swiss army knife really hasn't changed for like, what, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And he points out this, he said this interesting thing to me is like, you know, it's kind of pointless to actually seek disruption. Like disruption might or might not happen as long as you're focused on fulfilling your customer need in the best possible way, you're fine. And sometimes, you know, on that journey, you will invent something new, which becomes deeply disruptive. And sometimes on that journey, you end up making the Swiss army knife and you just keep making it and making it and making it because it's just perfect. It's fine, right? There's nothing to do about it. So I think it's important there's a there's an interesting obsession we have with like, oh, I want to be disruptive. I have to be disruptive, whatever it is, um, versus really just obsessing about your customer and saying, we'll just do whatever we do and is necessary for our customer to make them happy, to fulfill our mission in terms of giving them the product or service they deserve to fulfill that need they have. And it might become disruptive when we invent a new way of doing things. It might not. Who cares? It doesn't matter serving the needs of people mm -hmm. who need it and those those micro steps are the way you move it yeah. speaking of moving forward i mean it, i think talk to me there's a line in your book that i was reading through and i think it, it goes along with what you just said but i also think that it also just talks about how we how we interpret either what we need to do what the future is going to look like i'm just going to read it real quick and i think that i would love for you to comment on just how folks should be thinking about this and where it came from. But there's a line in there where you're talking about the future and you're talking about how people are formulating their different versions of what the future could be, some optimistic, some pessimistic, whatever those things are at different levels. Uh, and you say they are all correct. Each answer is the right one. And the future is all of these responses at the same time. Mm -hmm. So when I when you initially read that, I'll admit, it's it just, it was equally, like I had a grin and at the same time, it makes you go, how is that possible, mm -hmm. right? Can you talk to me about that? Because I think it does lend its point to yeah. what you just said too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in the beginning of the book, so the book really has these like three pieces, right? We are talking about decoding the future. Um, we're talking about disruption and then we'll talk about transformation. So how do you prepare your company for that future? And it really starts with like understanding what the future can hold for you. And the, the zoomed out perspective I think it's important to understand about the future is that we talk about the future as a singular, which is kind of weird. We say the future, a singular future. And in the futurist community, people like to talk about this as the official future, like the future we anticipate, the future where we believe there's a single path towards a single future. Um, there's a certain inevitability in it. And in reality, of course, if you just pause for like a split second, you realize, wait a second, there isn't a future. Like you create the future like every single day, right? It's like, you know, it's like uh, we just had uh, uh, 
the NBA uh, all-time record in uh, in points being broken, right? Um, if that that wouldn't have happened if the player would have been hit by a car, right? Different future, right? So it's, yeah. it, there is no inevitability to it, right? So understanding um, that there is a beautiful opportunity for every single one of us to create the future every single day. There's also an obligation for every single one of us to create the future every day, because if you don't create the future actively, the future will happen to you and you're just passively playing in it. But really understanding that there is a multitude of futures out there and um, uh, again, out of the futurist community, there's this idea around the cone of uncertainty. So the idea is to say, the further out you think about the future, the wider the array of possible and probable futures inside of that possible future happens, right? So there's a, if you think about like, you know, what's happening tomorrow, you know, at the stock market, for example, the stock market will move up or down a little bit. It will not go down by like, like it will not go down to zero. If I think about 500 years out and you talk about the NASDAQ, I don't know if the NASDAQ is even around in 500 years, right? So the, the array of possible futures becomes bigger. And the, the point I'm making is, and I think it's really important for us to understand, is that we really should think about the fact that you don't have a future. You have many futures. And I think we should really talk about futures and then the invitation for us is to then create our preferred future. You know, again, like working towards the future we want versus, you know, believing we live in a future which is inevitable and just happens. Uh, I mean, which is, just goes back to your point about how many of us, uh, just quickly going back to the organizational comment you meant about what folks are trying to become and how to become, I want to be innovative. Right. And they and they peg it as probably this one point in time and how it looks exactly. Whereas they're missing out on the multiple opportunities to become innovative by these simple steps that they can take every single day. Yeah. When you think about how do you not be overwhelmed by that thought? How do you decide to sift through those multitude of futures and then decide this is my preferred and what am I going to do about it? This goes back to how do you actually think about and deal about uncertainty? Right? Because ultimately, this is all about uncertainty. Future is uncertain by definition. Uncertainty is rising. There's a beautiful thing. Um, the Federal Reserve in uh, here in the United States publishes something called the Uncertainty Index. And they've been doing this for like 40 years or so. And what they essentially do is they look at company and country reports and look at the word uncertainty in those reports. So how often, and you know, related words, how often are they mentioned? And what they found is when you plot this is that over the last 30 years or so, uncertainty is rising. It's going up and up and up and up and up. So clearly we're living in an even more uncertain world. And if I can tell you one thing with certainty, that tomorrow will be even more uncertain. So the question becomes, how do you actually deal with uncertainty? And again, I think there's an, there's an attitudinal perspective. This goes a little bit to, you, you might've heard Carol Dweck has this whole growth mindset. Mm -hmm. um, she talks about the fixed mindset where you think that things are the way they are. And then there's a growth mindset, which gives you the ability to say, I can change them. And if you think about uncertainty, you need to apply if, and you should apply a, gro um, a growth mindset to it. You realize that uncertainty becomes a window into opportunity, right? Uncertainty becomes actually a nice thing. It's like interesting because it allows you to create. Um, how terrible would be our lives if you would know that Regardless what you do, this is what's happening. That's horrible, right? Whereas if, you're, if your perspective is, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I have control over what I can do. And that has in one way or the other, and even the smallest, but it has an effect on the future. It shapes the future. Um, and if you internalize that, then uncertainty becomes truly a window. And, you know, again, then it becomes, I think, less overwhelming and it becomes much more exciting because suddenly it's a bit like, where do you want to go? <laughs> you know, it's like the world is your oyster. Like, just do it. Yeah, and I think mindset. that's beautiful. I personally like it. I do too. Well, now, I mean, just simply framing it that way, that mindset of being able to look at these things as opportunities. You're right. Now you go from being overwhelmed to being like, this sounds like an incredible buffet now that I get mm -hmm. to pick from every single right. day and get to decide what to do with it. Because you are right, when you do fix a reality, even if it's a good one, 
you may decide you wanted it to be better. Well, okay, mm -hmm. great. You can't do anything about it if it is fixed, right? And so you how you kind of be able to get these things. How does companies think about that? How do how do you mm -hmm. see organizations, or maybe a better way to ask it is those who are doing it well, how are they doing it well? How are they treating that you know, thought process, mindset in a way that's actually going to serve them? I believe they start out with understanding and and assessing what is the what are the outer boundaries of this? We talked about this cone of uncertainty, right? So what are the outer boundaries of possible futures and probable futures inside of that? So understanding like what's even possible and what's probable. You know, if you do something which is impossible, that doesn't help you, right? Right. So because then you're just chasing chasing dreams. Um, so you figure out what are the what are the boundaries? And then you sit down and you say, what is the preferred future? What is the future I want to see for myself, for my organization, for my team inside of that, inside of that cone? And the moment you can articulate this, the moment you can see it for yourself, I think then storytelling kicks in, right? Then it's about how do you communicate this to the people around you? And we talked about this earlier, it's like this notion around how do you gel them into one unit? How do you get them excited about this future? And this is all, and you said this so beautifully about your time in the service. It's all about the stories. It's about our history and it's about the future we can, we can create. But you can't tell that story if you can't see a future. If the future is nebulous to you, if you just say like, oh, we need to like, I don't know, like currently AI is like the, the latest rage, right? And like you just run around like, oh, we need to figure out something with AI because everybody else is doing it. And then people are like lost and they're like, that's overwhelming to me. I don't know what to do with that. But if you can go out there and say, hey, we looked at what's possible with AI. Here's what we believe we could do with AI in our business. Here's how this would make the company better, how it would help our customers, how it would make, you know, whatever, make an impact. Now let's build this. Then people sit there and they're like, okay, I get it. Now I can build it. You know, it goes back to... Um, you know, can, you can disagree with the politics, but uh, JFK and his moonshot speech, right? The beauty of that moonshot speech was it painted a future, an outrageously amazing, crazy, unthinkable future. By the end of this decade, we will put a man on the moon, you know, like blah, blah, blah. But it was also told in a way that was clear, as a clear goal, like JFK had a very clear, like put a man on the moon. Like I put this, like you have an image in your head. You literally yeah. see the moon and you see a little person standing on it, right? Flag, like planting yeah, an American flag. Like that's what happens, right? So I can see it now. And then um, the other brilliance in his speech is that he made us part of that journey, right? It's not just like, he didn't say, the United States will, or the US military will put a man on the moon. You will watch, you know? <laughs> he said, we, we collect, we all, right? So suddenly everybody in the United States sat there and they were like, oh my God, I'm part of this effort. I'm part of this like thing, putting the man on the moon, right? And if it's only me watching it on television and sharing them on. But that's the power. I think that's the real power of good leaders, um, particularly in a world which is full of uncertainty, which lends itself to dis disruption, um, is to tell, to tell compelling visions and stories where we see ourselves as part of the story. We see how we can contribute to the story. And to get to that story, you need to even know where you go. And that requires you to actually understand what the future can hold, understand that there's a buffet, as you mentioned, and that you can choose and you have to choose. Otherwise it's going to choose it for you, right? And then yes. you end up being on this whiplash of a ride that isn't all that fun. Even if you do end up in a spot where it's half decent, it ends up being, I do find folks disenfranchised who are successful. Mm -hmm because they didn't really come about it themselves. I.e., somebody who had a trust fund or something that right. future took care of them objectively are doing okay, but they didn't create that path. And so therefore it brings upon depression and some of the other things that come along with it. But guys, you're thinking about, as you think about the future and you're helping companies think through these things, as folks are digging into this book, what are the other things you hope they gain from it? What it was like based on your intention, what do you hope that as they're coming out of this and saying great perspective, great insights, what else do you want them and hopefully want them to be able to get from it? So really for me, the, uh, the starting point for the journey for my company was to say, I very fundamentally believe that coming out of the startup world, 
Um, the startup world is really good at looking at problems, at looking at opportunities and saying, I'm going to crush this. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it means I need to trample over the existing companies there, which is fine. I have no problem with that. You know, Schumpeter's like, you know, creative destruction and so on. I do believe, though, if you're looking at this societally, that if you look at incumbent organizations, and I have a beautiful story about a company where this really hit me um, uh, out of Austria in Europe. There's uh, a company in the automotive industry called Miba. They make parts for the automotive industry. I can guarantee you, if you drive a car today, there's at least one part from them is in there. Yeah. Um, very high end. They are located in a small village in Austria, uh, just across the border from Germany. You get to that village and you realize half of the village works at Miba and the other half of the village happens to support the work of Miba by, you know, supporting the people who work at Miba. And I think there's a really interesting thing in there, which is how do we support organizations like Miba in staying relevant to create what we call sustainable relevance to to make sure that they're around in 20 30 40 years not just because we care about them as companies and we care about their products or services but really because we care about the people who work there and their their importance inside of their community so one thing we we wanted to do with the book is really give leaders of incumbent organizations a playbook which they can hopefully like use, you know, to at least inform partially their journey in becoming and staying relevant in their industries. Because I think it's so important that we're not just trampling over these people and say, you know, down with you and who cares about you. You know, if you look at it societally, if you look at it from like a country perspective, a regional perspective, I think it's really important that we support these people and their, their organizations and they're good people, they're good organizations. So my aim, my hope with that book is to give people this blueprint. And then as a startup founder, you can take that book, of course, and turn it on its head and say, what can I learn from here in terms of how do I actually insert myself into industries which are struggling? Um, so it kind of works both ways, which is interesting. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. And the, I think going a degree beyond that and thinking about the people who support these teams that we focus on we think about microsoft or you think about apple or you think about google or you think about gm or whatever and you think about just the employee base but you always sometimes forget about the families or the local cafe that has 40 of these people show up for lunch every day and this is how they make their living oftentimes those concentric circles outside the core of what we pay attention to are for, are just dismissed mm -hmm. as being like well you know so and so let go of 700 employees today I wonder what actually the additional ripples of that were, not just those 700 employees. There's right. more tied to it. And so it sounds like this is a way for folks to kind of dig a little bit deeper on it. I dig it, man. But guys, we're coming on time. There's one thing that we do to, and I could talk to you all day about it. And I hope folks grab your book and dive into this stuff and, and continue to just push themselves a little further outside their zone of knowing into mm -hmm. other ways. But the way we end this show is we talk about North Stars and talk about yours and what's either guided you professionally, personally, or whatever. Ours here on our team is, is curiosity above judgment, courage above all. And so we do that to guide us in how we think about going left, going right, how we treat people, how we make decisions, how we decide what to do, how we decide what not to do, those kinds of things. And I found with folks like you especially who's been in this, in this world and in this game for quite some time, there's usually some North Star that drives you. There's usually something that either guides you, realigns you or something. What is that for you? I think it's two pieces. One is I have a very strong um, necessity inside of me to tell the truth. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in, your, uh, in our first conversation about the jester, right? That who was the only one who could tell the king the truth because they don't have self-interest. Um, Sometimes that's detrimental to my, my career, right? Because some people don't want to hear the truth. Um, I also learned there's different ways you can tell the truth, right? So you can like shout it into someone's face or you can actually like make sure that they actually can hear it, which sometimes means you need to couch it. But really like, and we have established this in my, my organization. I think we all live this really, really strongly is that we are 100% committed to driving value for our clients, our community, the people we are surrounded by. 
and be also super committed. And this has often something to do with us being able to tell the truth, even if it's hard. It also means that we tell clients, if we feel like we can't help them, we tell them always like, listen, we're not the right people. Even if it means like there's an attractive, you know, like lucrative contract in front of us, we're like, we shouldn't do this. Um, so we're very clear about this. The other thing I found on a personal level, and this is something which I just learned over, you know, the years, basically decades, is that what drives me and what gives me most joy is to help others to step in their full, into their full brilliance and just do what they need to do. Um, so I really enjoy the, the coach role, like the person who's like standing behind you and helps you, guides you, prevents you from doing the mistakes you shouldn't make because they've been made before. I, 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 I get enormous amount of pleasure out of that. Um, and I think it's important for, you know, everybody just to understand, like, where are you on the, if you think about like the sports metaphor, like if you think about like a, a you know, a, a football team, yes. Super Bowl is coming up as we're recording this here. So talking about football, right? It's like, where do you, like, where do you want to play? Are you an offense player? Are you a defense player? You know, are you, uh, Tom Brady, you know, or do you want to be like, the person who kind of nobody actually really knows, you know, plays on the team and like just make sure that the ball doesn't get through. Uh, are you the coach? Are you the guy who is like bringing the Gatorade to the uh, uh, to the stand? And really understanding that, and I think there's a little bit of a really interesting like societal challenge where everybody wants to be Tom Brady. Yeah. And really understanding that that person who's bringing the Gatorade to the uh, to the players is as important, if maybe not even more important than Tom Brady. Right, and so really finding your role, like finding where you get pleasure out of, um, and like stepping into that. And for me, again, like this was for me was like, I love being the person who's the like the coach behind. I don't need to like run that and and do the touchdown. Right, that's not my world. Um, but yeah, that's that's a guiding. It's a really important guiding principle for me. Yeah, it's a great guiding light. I think a lot of us need that recentering. We spend a lot of our lives chasing things that quite frankly isn't in our hmm. in our space of fulfillment, genius, and all the other things that come along there. So Pascal, I'd say you're in the right business man and doing the right things. But as always, my friend, thank you so much for spending the time here today to chat with me. The insights, not only from the book, but just the way you think of the world, I think is going to help and always will help incredible amounts of people. So you living out that that guide role. Um, I think we'll continue to permeate. So thank you again for the time. Joseph, thank you so much. This was a, a really phenomenal conversation as always with you. Thank you. Well, thank you all for listening. This is the Professionally Offensive Podcast. You can catch us on all platforms. JC out.